Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. His trade from Los Angeles to Philadelphia is regarded as one of the worst in basketball history. A very unfair evaluation because when Wilt Chamberlain was traded, no matter the players involved, whomever the Warriors got back, the trade would go down as one of the worst in history. And it's not as if Philadelphia got a bad player in return. Nope. Archie Clark was anything but a bad basketball player. And what he did off the court to advance player stature and help players gain a larger part of the NBA pie can never be overlooked. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the great Archie Clark stops by to talk about his marvelous career. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 107, Archie Clark. Now, as many of you know, I like to release episodes of Sports Forgotten Heroes during the appropriate seasons. So, in the middle of August, talking about a forgotten hero from hockey, or during January, talking about a forgotten hero from baseball, it just doesn't make much sense to me. But, Since basketball is still being played as the NBA playoffs roar on, now is as good a time as any to talk hoops. And I have a very special guest today, Archie Clark, who averaged 16.3 points per game and 4.8 assists per game over the course of a career that lasted 11 years. Also on this episode of SFH is Bob Kuska, who just released a wonderful biography about Archie called Shake and Bake, The Life and Times of NBA Great Archie Clark. Now I got to tell you, when I got the book, I was a little overwhelmed at its length, 342 pages. But wow, what an easy to read book. Just not sure how Bob did it, but it was easy to read, 
fun to read, and it was filled with all sorts of nuggets and terrific stories. Of course, there were a few apparent themes throughout, including the tough travel schedule NBA players had to endure during Archie's time, how Archie was utilized on the teams he played for, Archie being traded for one of the all-time greats, Wilt Chamberlain, and everything that led up to that trade, and Archie's battles with management over contracts and salaries. It's really interesting to hear Archie's position on these battles, and Bob does such a great job at presenting Archie's side of those battles. Of course, Archie, Bob, and I talk a lot about Archie's career on the court and the fact that he brought the shake and bake to the game and was also the man who brought the step back to the game. Really some fascinating stuff here, and I am so happy that I can share it all with you with Archie. Now, before we get into all of it, remember to spread the word and let your family and friends know about Sports Forgotten Heroes. Hit subscribe and help build an even larger fan base of the podcast. You can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes, where I make posts every day about my current episode and a few other tidbits as well. Look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook, find Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram, or check out sportsfh.com on the web. Here, I have more information about my guests, the forgotten stars I talk about, and I encourage you to leave me a note on the Ask a Question page or make a suggestion on whom you'd like to hear an episode about. In fact, today's episode is a perfect example. Listener, follower, Larry Morris sent me a note about Archie. You know, I did a little research and thought, what a great topic. So, here we are just a short time later, and not only am I doing an episode about Archie Clark, I was able to bring Archie onto the show. So, if you have a question or a suggestion, please visit sportsfh.com and let me know. I won't ignore you. Also, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating. And as always, thank you for listening and thanks for your support. Now, let's get on with today's show and my guests, the author of the book, Shake and Bake, The Life and Times of NBA great Archie Clark, Bob Kuska, and the great Archie Clark himself. Bob Kuska, Archie Clark, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am so glad you could join. Glad to be here. And I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. Let's start uh, real simply with you, Bob. Where does your interest in Archie come from? And why write a book about or with him? Why, why, how did you two get hooked up and... Why write this book? Well, Archie already knows the answer to this question. Um, Archie was my favorite player as a kid um, growing up. I grew up in 
Northern California, and um, you know, I was in love with basketball, and and Archie had was just an incredible playmaker, and I just liked how he played. It's, you know, how he when he was on the court, how he just kind of controlled the the, the game and his you know the, the moves that he had, and so on. And um, over the years, I decided that Archie would be the the perfect person to tell um, the story of, of the NBA becoming really the, the modern NBA that we all know, um, you know, the multi-billion dollar business. And um, so I contacted Archie and we, we talked about it and, and we said, let's, let's do it. Archie, how about for you? How cool is it that somebody wanted to write a book about your career? Um, yeah, it, it was, it was really surprising um, because, you know, uh, looking at, at my career, um, I wondered, you know, um, what would interest somebody, but after having talked with, uh, with Bob and we got together and I realized that, you know, my career expanded the, uh, advent of the ABA Mm-hmm. And of course, during that period, it was ABA and NBA kind of warring, and so it, it, it you know, it, it, it seemed like it was something that could really be a, a pretty good story to tell. Well, I found the story to be terrific, and Bob, as you might imagine, hosting a podcast like this one requires me to do a lot of reading a lot of studying, researching. And when I get a book over 300 pages in length, I like to read every word of every book for fear that I might miss something. Well, 300 pages in length, I sometimes get intimidated and wonder, how long will it take me to get through it? Well, I've got to say, your book, all 346 pages of it was an incredibly enjoyable and easy to read book. I'm not sure how you did this, but the words, they flowed so easily. It it, it just, it wasn't hard to read. It just moved. Kudos to you. And I, and I really mean that. How did you do it? Well, I I worked on this project with somebody who who was willing to to open up his life to me, and um, you know we we worked on it together. And and um, Archie would tell me things, and then I would go down to Library of Congress um, in particular and, and look through newspapers, and I'd, I'd back things up with with additional interviews. So I just really tried to um, really get as much detail as possible to bring back this era to life. I, th- I think that that might be what you, what you encountered when you read the book is that, that this era of basketball was kind of brought back to life and just moved. And, and, and it was a special period. Mm-hmm. Archie, you loved sports growing up. And I guess you used your gift of being so, talented athletically to help you get out of the projects in Detroit. So first, if you can, 
Tell me what life was like living and growing up in the projects. You spoke of gangs, living on the right or the wrong side of the tracks, and at at work, the different races of people got along and they worked together, but when quitting time came, the different races of people, they really didn't congregate and mix. Tell us about that. Tell us what life was like for you growing up. Well, life for me growing up, coming out of a family that uh, had 12 children in a 1945 project that were built with with drywall and shingles, uh, uh, it, it, you know, it was almost feeling like we were the poorest of poor mm. coming out of that area. Um, but, you know, coming with a lot of, of, of brothers and sisters, of course, um, we, we had, had to, of course, uh, kind of make our way. And, and I say make our way is because there wasn't a lot of discipline because my mom and dad, of course, my mom, they had so many kids. It was hard to, to take care of, of, you know, where we where we were going, what we were doing. And uh, I was uh, an athletic type person. I, I played a lot of sports. Mm-hmm. So most of the time I was out playing until I got into my teens. And then, of course, during that period, growing up, uh, there were uh, a lot of situations where we as young Teenagers had to get together because uh, the area I grew up was E-Course, and it was an, uh, another community right next to it called River Rouge. And then, of course, it, it was southwest Detroit. It was three areas right in the same spot, so, and everyone, you know, had their own little turf. Mm-hmm. So as teenagers, of course, we gravitated towards... Uh, you know, we called it a club, but you could call it gang. Right. Well, well, some of those gangs, I'm sure, and the impression I got in reading the book was you really, as you just said, you sort of needed to be a part of one. Um, but you, Archie, you didn't necessarily take part in, uh, how do I say this, maybe some of the un unlawful related activities. So why did you need to join the club or the gang? What was that like? Well, it, it, it started as a result of, of who your friends were or who, you know, so, uh, yeah, you know, I had a friend and that friend had a friend. And of course, and then you kind of came together. The, the thing with me was I was never a follower. And so when the, when the gang or club, we formed, uh, the guy who originally formed the club, uh, you know, we had a vote and the guys, they voted for me to be the president of a club. <laughs> so as a result, I was, I was more of, uh, of, of a leader as opposed to a follower. And in terms of, of those kind of activities that would gravitate towards doing something illegal, and it just didn't make sense to me. I mean, I, I just, 
I, I, I would I would say no. I'm not going to do those kinds of things. So I wasn't going to do that. Uh, whatever that incident was. Uh, instead, of course, I gravitated towards you know more athletic type of situation. Mm-hmm. I played a lot of baseball. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ended up playing basketball, and of course, played football. Um, so those kind of athletic situations kind of kept me from uh, being the kind of person that that would have gravitated towards doing things that was much more illegal. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get rid of this negative stuff and talk about your athletic uh, your athletic gifts and the fact that your favorite sport was baseball. Why? What was it about baseball that you loved so much? Well, well, when we came, when I came up and grew up in the forties, early forties and fifties, baseball was the sport that we played most of the time. Basketball really came a little bit later, and baseball, um, I, I enjoyed, you know, the game itself. I enjoyed uh, competing. I enjoyed uh, uh, playing the, the field. Uh, I was. Uh, uh, initially, uh, I played the infield, and of course, you know, I I would be hit ground balls, and I enjoyed being able to, you know, to be able to feel those those uh, balls. And then I moved to the outfield, and and I had a almost like a mentor. He uh, he really wanted to be a baseball player, and he would hit me fly balls, and and and, and uh, uh, kind of grill me and kind of really taught me how to develop a physical skill. Mm-hmm. So I, I enjoyed baseball. I, I enjoyed the whole aspect of, of the pitcher trying to com- compete against the batter. And, of course, I enjoyed, you know, being able to hit and then run the bases and, and steal the bases and things like that. It, it, it was just a, 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 a good form of, of enjoyment for me and competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was initially – you know, my, my, my really, my love, I, if you could say I had something that I loved, that it was really baseball. And you had a chance to go to a, a, a tryout camp or spring training with the Detroit Tigers, but you never, you never made it there. What happened? <laughs> well, yeah, um, I, uh, the, the Tigers had a, um, uh, a camp. Uh, in a in a neighborhood not too far from me called Wyandotte, and uh, me and another friend we went down and we competed, and I, I felt I'd done I had done pretty well, but at the same time, you know, they didn't say anything to me, you know, uh, uh, after the you know the the little tryout, and as it happened, a friend of mine. Uh, I said to me, let's go, let's go get in the army and we do it on a buddy plan. And so, uh, that's what I did. I went down, he and I went down to the recruitment center and we took the test and I passed the test and fortunately he didn't pass it. So I ended up, uh, being in, uh, had to go into the army. And when I was in the army, I, I got a letter from the Tigers invited me down to Lakeland, Florida for for spring tryout. 
But of course, at that time, I was already in the armed forces. Mm -hmm. Well, before we dive deep into your NBA career, we must note that getting to the NBA was a little more difficult, at least it sounded that way for you, than it was for many others. Sure, you played college ball at Minnesota, but like you said, you also spent time in the Army. So when you finally made it, you were already 25 years old. So how did your time in the Army affect your NBA career? Obviously, it took years off your career, but were you able to use any of your experience from serving in the Army in a positive way to help your career? Well, uh, when I was in the Army, the last year of my service in the Army, I was stationed in Suitland, Maryland right outside of Washington, D.C. And I was in a, a headquarters battery of a missile outfit, and we had a, uh, a, 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 a mural program with Andrews Air Force Base. And as we were, I, was playing, I was playing basketball uh, in that little intramural program, and the... the, um, the the coach of the base team saw me and asked me to come out for the team. And I, I went out uh, for the team and, and I made it. And so I, uh, the captain uh, who I worked for in the missile outfit, he allowed me to, to play for the air force. And of course, uh, the air force really had real good competition. There's a lot of guys who had, played college ball who was in service and so the competition was pretty good. I ended up uh, my, made the all Air Force team which was uh, one of the highest honor of course playing basketball in the Air, Air Force. So that was that kind of impetus. Uh, the, the coach of the uh, base team. He, he was an alumni of the University of Minnesota and uh, he had played basketball and the uh, assistant coach uh, for the team at that particular time uh, he told his name was Glenn Reed Buzz Bennett was the coach of, of the base team he, he told Glenn Reed about me and uh, I ended up <laughs> sight unseen, getting a scholarship to the University of Minnesota. Wow. On the word of on the word of Buzz Bennett. Wow. Hey, Bob, the draft, the NFL draft, the NBA draft, they are so different and so big and so popular today than they were back in 1966 when Archie was trying to get into the NBA. How how do or how does the draft differ from back then than it is today? Oh, it's like night and day. Um, you know, then they they had <laughs> conference calls, and it was, was kind of a newfangled thing. And uh, you know, as mentioned in the 
the book, I believe, is um, how the the conference calls never worked. It was all Walter Kennedy uh, <laughs> trying to get mm. them to work, and um, so what, what's what's happened with the the draft, and and it's really how the the, the book starts. His players would get drafted, and as Archie will tell you, um, he, you know, he wasn't really, you know, he, he knew that the teams might have some interest, but he wasn't really aware that that he was going to get going to be drafted. I mean, there was certainly no green room as as there is now. There also weren't agents, and and um, you know, as the book begins, um, Archie sits down, sits across from the very veteran um, general manager of the Los Angeles Lakers, who's negotiated a ton of contracts and has all the power to begin with. And um, Archie, who had never negotiated a contract in his life, um, had to do the best he could. So it was very uneven. um, And um, it's the teams, the general managers benefited and, and, and that allowed them to keep salaries down. Yeah, so Archie, you sort of had to campaign for yourself to get drafted. You had to let people know who you were. Talk about the process of getting yourself recognized to be drafted. Well, I I really didn't campaign to be drafted. Uh, you know, uh, in fact, I don't didn't even know when the draft was had occurred. And uh, even though my senior year, I, I performed very well uh, in the Big Ten. I averaged 25 points a game. And for the whole season, I averaged over 24 points. And I, I was uh, voted unanimous All-Big Ten uh, performer. But having said that, you know, I really didn't uh, follow the draft. I, I wasn't into being a, a, a basketball player. In fact, I really hadn't thought about it. I really wanted to be a baseball player. But anyway, I got drafted by the Lakers, and uh, uh, they, uh, the general manager, of course, was uh, of course looking for me um, after he had drafted me, and uh, he contacted uh, a news reporter uh, in in Minnesota, a guy named Sid Hartman, and Sid Hartman called a friend of mine's house, a guy named Carl Eller, who's, uh, he's a Hall of Famer football player. I was over his house, and he said that um, uh, that the general manager of the Lakers was looking for me and that uh, he would be at a hotel, Lemington, uh, downtown Minneapolis, and he wanted to talk to me about a contract. They had drafted me uh, uh, on, in the third round and actually the fourth player picked by the Los Angeles Lakers. At that particular time, there was only 10 teams in the league. So anyway, I went down uh, uh, to the hotel, and he was sitting at a lunch counter. He told me, <laughs> he said that he was going to be at a lunch counter. So I see this guy at the lunch counter. So I go and I sit down beside him, and he told me who he was and everything. And the way he, he started with me in terms of his negotiating, I realized it was negotiating looking back. But at that particular time, you know, I started off as a conversation. And he said to me, he said, um, well, I just came from Utah with my first round draft choice. And I'm on my way to my other first round draft choice in Dayton. So I happened to stop here 
um, in Minnesota. And I thought that I would uh, see my third round draft choice and my four player pick, who are who is who you who are who is you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he said, and I I thought maybe you know you would want to sign a contract. And I said, uh, oh, what are you offering? He said, uh, well, a third round draft choice and a fourth player picked on our for, for, from that draft give you eleven thousand dollars. I know he said ten thousand dollars first. Is what he said. I said uh, ten thousand dollars. I said, well, I play baseball. The guy looked at me. <laughs> he said. Basketball is your best game. Looking back, of course, that that still was negotiating, which I, 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 you know, I didn't have anything to say when he said basketball was my best game because right. I didn't have anything going for basketball. So anyway, I, I said, well, uh, you, you give a, a, a bonus. He said, no, no, we don't give any bonus. <laughs> he said, but uh, I could give you some front money. <laughs> I said, well, you know, what you talking about? He said, well, I can give you $2,000, you know, and you can sign a contract. And uh, at the time, I, I, I had nothing else in, 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 in the works. I wasn't sure what I was going to do in terms of my life. And so I said, okay, and I ended up signing a contract, which ended up being for $11,000, of which he gave me $2,000 up front. And so I took that $2,000 and bought my first car that I ever had. Wow. Hey, this is this is for both of you. When you look at today's game, today's NBA game, it's certainly, without a doubt, nothing like what you played in, Archie. Um, well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, the game on the floor, absolutely different. But things like travel getting from city to city, town to town, midweek afternoon games, even the arenas. You played in places no no NBA team would step into today. What was it like? What was playing in the NBA like back then as it is compared to today? Well, it, it it, it was a grind. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. Initially, we didn't have first-class travel. Uh, we had one uniform, uh, away uniform, well, uh, <laughs> away jersey as well as the home jersey, but we had the same, uh, of course, uh, 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 shorts. Uh, and we had to carry our own uh, uh, bag with, with our, our uniform in it. Um, it, it, you know, we had, there was one actually trainer and actually all he did pretty much was, was tape your ankles. And, uh, he was almost like the secretary of, of the, of the, uh, the, the traveling, uh, like a traveling secretary for the team. Uh, it, it, it was, it was a grind. Um, and of course, you know, when, when you're almost at the bottom, as I was, uh, like, uh, on that particular team in my first year, I was like the 12th man initially. And so it, it was, it, it was not glamorous. I'll put it like that by any means. 
Um, well, Archie, as as a rookie too, you had to carry all the bags. <laughs> yeah, we had to carry had had to carry the balls uh, and, and and any other kind of equipment that uh, the, the trainer wanted us to carry <laughs> some of his stuff. Uh, but fortunately, it was four of us, and uh, we could spread it around a little bit. Archie, it took you a little bit of time to break into the starting lineup for the Lakers. What were the circumstances that led to you starting? And how did your game complement the game of the guys you played with? Guys like Jerry West, Gail Goodrich, and Elgin Baylor. Well, um, like I indicated earlier, I was... The, probably the 12th guy on the team initially when we broke camp. And um, Walt Hazard and Gail Goodrich, of course, they played for UCLA, which was in Los Angeles. And, of course, Jerry West, he was end up he was being called at that time the Mr. Laker. So they had three good guards. And so I was like the fourth guard, and Walt, as I said earlier, he was the quarterback of the team. And as Walt was the kind of guy that he dominated the ball, and uh, he wanted most of the guys to go without the basketball. But Jerry and Elgin both were guys who, when they uh, – they wanted the ball because they could create shots for themselves and they weren't going to go without the ball all game long. Mm. So at various times, the offense would, would almost grind to a halt. And so the coach would uh, end up taking Walt Hazard out and he would insert Gail Goodrich. Well, Gail was the type of player that really – uh, he liked going without the basketball himself. So, and he was a good uh, shooter. Uh, so, when he went into the game, uh, if he Jerry broke to, to 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 get open, he would give Jerry the ball. Uh, if Elgin broke to get open, he would give Elgin the ball, and then Gail would go without the basketball, and then the offense would start to move move a little bit better. But the difference was that. Gail was not a, a real good defensive player. Mm. And a lot of times the the defense uh, uh, wasn't very good at that particular time in various parts of the game. So the coach re- recognized that, hey, we he needed some, some more defensive uh, 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 presence in the game. And in December of that, my first year, he decided to insert me because uh, I had demonstrated that I could play defense. And another guy named Tommy Hawkins, uh, he inserted Tommy and I to, to show up the defense. And as a result, uh, he, he started me and, and Tommy. And as a result, I already knew how to quarterback. I quarterbacked in, in, uh, in at Minnesota. And – so I would do what Gail would do. If Elgin broke, <laughs> I'd give him the ball and I'd go without it. If Gary broke, I'd give him the ball and I'd go without it. And the thing is, I recognized when each, either one of them got hung up, 
and they need an outlet, I would break and and get open. And as a result, the offense started really churning pretty well, and it's and the defense we were really clamping down on on uh, uh, other teams' defense, and so we we took off and and the team moved pretty well. And from then on, I I was a starter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is for both of you, Archie. I think that you learned very quickly about the business side of the NBA. And Bob, your book, Shake and Bake, The Life and Times of NBA Great Archie Clark, focuses a lot on the business of the NBA, particularly from a player's perspective when it comes to contracts. I get the impression, Archie, that you... You were never comfortable with the way management treated players when it came to contracts. And after your second year with the Lakers, after you had even thought about jumping to the new league, the ABA, your eyes were opened to a whole new world. Basketball wasn't just a game. It was a business. And you had to fight for what was right when it came to the subject of contracts. In fact, you were one of the first to fight for a better contract and not just settle for the NBA standard contract. So what was, and either of you can answer this, what was the NBA standard and what opened Archie's eyes to the way NBA owners treated its players when it came to contracts? Well, well Archie, I'll let you go first. Yeah, okay. Um, after my, my, my second year, uh, I became an all-star. And um, the, the Lakers... We had lost in 1968 in the finals to, to Boston. And the owner of the team, uh, Jack Ken Cook, he really wanted a championship in Los Angeles. The Lakers had won championship in, in Minneapolis, but they had not won a championship in Los Angeles. So he really wanted a, uh, a championship. So he decided to trade me. And that really upset me. It showed to me at that time that the team didn't have any loyalty. And a friend of mine, a former player named Woody Salisbury, he had been in the league for several years and he was working out in Los Angeles and he and I got together and we started working out together and he started telling me about the, the business of basketball. And in other words, you know, look, no, a lot of these teams, they don't have any loyalty. And so, you know, you have to kind of see for yourself uh, and try to, you know, make the best of your ability and, and get what you feel that you deserve. And when they traded me, I, I was really totally upset. From then on, I wanted to be a free agent because I thought it was so unfair for a team to be able to just 
uproot you, uproot your family, and just send you anywhere they want to. And at, at the same time, I realized as a as an all star that my value was not being appreciated by the Lakers at that big time, as far as I was concerned. Uh, my first year, I'd make eleven thousand dollars, like I, I, I indicated earlier. And after that, the second season, uh, they held me out, uh, giving me a contract until almost after we had our first road trip and I came back to Los Angeles and finally I signed a contract for $35,000, which was from 11,000 to 35 was all gone good. But then I realized also that, you know, as an all-star and I competing against all the other guys that was in the league, I realized that my talent was as good as anyone out there. That's the way I saw it because I could quarterback. I was supposedly a defensive stopper, and plus I could score. And who? That was all the game was about. And as a quarterback, I, and you know they would call you point guard and shooting guard, but I looked at it like a, a point guard, a guy who understands how to how to uh, help a team be productive was a quarterback. And I thought it was great value in being a quarterback. And from then on, I negotiated in that in that uh, realm, I'll put it like that. But as I was saying, Jack Kent Cook wanted the championship. Mm-hmm. We had lost to Boston in the finals, and he wanted the championship very badly. And he indicated to me <laughs> that he was going to trade me and uh, he, he said he, I was in a, in a trade, and, and he said that it, he didn't want me to mess up his trade. His trade was going to be to Philadelphia or, or, or Boston. I think he just threw out Boston just to not let me know for sure it was going to be Philadelphia. But anyway, um, during, during that uh, negotiating period, um, I had a conversation with Will and Winfield indicated to me that he was coming out that way. So I knew I had some leverage and I utilized that leverage to get a contract for $105,000. That was my third year. And from then on, I wanted to be a free agent. And I felt like this. I felt that understanding that I was a laborer, I wanted to get paid for my labor. Mm-hmm. But, but the remarkable thing about this story is Archie came in at $11,000. Two years later, he was making over, he had a contract for over $100,000. And then $100,000 was really the gold standard of, of being a superstar. You remember Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell, they, they, they got up there just a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. So Archie, through, his, um, through, through Woody Salisbury, was taught very correctly about how the system worked and how to exploit it to to, to your your advantage because the system wasn't going to help you out. You really had to you had to take take in control of the situation, and that's what Archie did. Mm-hmm. And there was so much negotiation throughout Archie's career. But before we get into it, let's get a little bit back to some fun. Archie, tell us about the move you developed during the summer between I think it was your rookie season 
and your second season, a move that is second nature in today's NBA, but a move that really vaulted your career, the step back. What prompted you to develop that move and how important was it in your development as an all-star basketball player? Well, <laughs> during, during the, the summer, like I said, after my second year, Woody Salisbury, he, he was about 6'8", with long arms. He had been a defensive player. Uh, I think he might have been a, 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 with the Philadelphia Warriors. Initially, he had, I think he had been an all-defensive team at one point. But anyway, he and I, uh, he wanted to get in shape, and of course, I was trying to continue to develop myself. And he and I would play one-on-one. And he had long arms. He was 6'8", and here I'm only about 6'2". So in order for me to get my shot off, I had to trick him and, 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 and provide some space between he and I in order to get my shot off. So I developed the, the step back. I would, I would, I would push him back, uh, as though I was going to drive past him. And then I would plant that right foot and push back and I could pull up and shoot my jumper and he could not block it. And from then on, it was difficult for anybody to block my shot. Uh, with that step back. But the step back was just only part of, of the move that, that really uh, I, I'm really known for, which is, is, is the title of the book, Shake, shake and, and Bake. Shake and Bake. I was going to go um, there. So tell us about the Shake and Bake. Yeah, well, that that was that came as a result of of me being a point guard. A lot of times, point guards, you, you, you set the pace for the team. And I would at the pace I would run uh, dribble uh, into from the back court into the front court and I a lot of times uh, the defense might be set but I'd run right at my defensive player <laughs> and uh, uh, I could burst past him if he would if he didn't know how to shuffle his feet very well and what I would do I would I had a little stutter step a little shake stutter step type uh, uh, situation that would put me in a position where I could break off either way. And if the defensive man tried to deny me and kept me from going and continued with my right hand, uh, I would then cross over, which I developed the crossover, which I weaponized the crossover. So that was the, the shake and bake uh, situation that that uh, got me the name Shake and Bake. Uh, uh, but but the amazing the amazing thing about it though is that you adapted um, a football move to the basketball court. Well, yeah, it, the, the 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 going right at a defensive player came when I was playing a uh, uh, touch football. It's, even in the army, I was. We'd, we'd play touch football. I would run right at the defensive guy, and I would do a stutter step, and he, I could break off either way. And so when I start playing basketball, and I would do the same thing. I'd run right at, at, at the defensive player, and I could break off either way. And most of the time, the defensive guy didn't want me to continue right 
because I was, you know, I had a strong right hand uh, dribble. And so they would sometimes cheat to try to keep me from going right. And then I would cross over and that would take me right into the lane, which a lot of times I wanted to get that there anyway, because if I got into the lane, I had several ways to be able to finish at the basket. And when the centers start recognizing uh, that it was difficult for them to kind of defense me once I got into that lane, they started backing up to try to keep me from laying the ball up, you know, and trying to get uh, layup. And that's when I would use my step back. It amazes me. And, and that, that's one of the big yeah. differences. That's one of the big differences between the game then and the game now. Um, because Archie was trying to get the highest percentage shot. That's what all the teams wanted to do. Uh, there was nothing about getting a, a three-point shot. Mm-hmm. Sure, there wasn't There wasn't no, a three-point line I never there. Played, I, I never played with the three-point line. And I see guys now, they, they're stepping back. You know, they, they push the guy back beyond uh, in front of the three-point uh, line, and then they step back. Uh, behind the three-point line and and and, and get a three-point shot, uh, which is very difficult to defend. It's it amazes me, Archie, that your name is not a more popular name uh, when we talk about the history of the NBA, just based off of the shake and bake, the step back, and your effect on the game as far as the business of the game is concerned. So Jack Kent cook makes this trade and he sends you to Philadelphia for Wilt Chamberlain. Bob, you said in your book that Archie's trade from the Lakers to the Sixers by some experts could be regarded as the worst trade in NBA history. At least that's what they said. Why? Well, <laughs> yeah, the center was such a dominant position then. Um, and so you wouldn't trade a, a, a guard straight up for the, the most dominant center in the league. Um, and, you know, uh, there was Archie and there are two other players, of course, including a center, a, a pretty serviceable center in Daryl Imhoff. But Archie was sort of the key player in, in this, this trade. And, um, you know, one of the one of the important things with with pro basketball and something you hear all the time is fit. You know, you need to go to the right team. You need you need a good fit. And when Archie went to to Philadelphia, Jack Kent Cook um, had his 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 game plan, and it wasn't a, really a game plan to allow Archie to to excel with all the the talent that we've talked about so far and really display his, his ability to score and, and, and dish the ball um, in the way that, that, that he, he would later in his career. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd really like to get into so much more about all of this, but we only have, you know, we could be for hours. Again, the book is, you know, 346 pages and so much is covered. So I'm just picking and pecking at a couple of different things here. And I encourage everybody out there to get this book. It is just a terrific book. Um, You know, Shake and Bake, The Life and Times of NBA Great Archie Clark is 
it's really, it's just really an easy to read book and delves into so much. One of them being this, Archie, when you were traded to Philadelphia, one of the things that you said in the book was you made a mistake by saying you would be happy or at least accept the role of being the Sixers' sixth man. Why was that a mistake? And what were the repercussions of making such a decision? Well, uh, as I indicated earlier, I was all, I was an all-star. And I accepted being the sixth man, but that wasn't necessarily what I wanted. That was the coach's decision. That was uh, Dr. Jack, uh, the coach, Jack, uh, Jack Ramsey. And, and Jack looked at it like this. They had two good guards who had been on championship team in 1967. Walt, uh, it was Wally Jones, who was a, a good quarterback and Hal Greer was a great scorer. And they had played together for several years, and he thought that they should continue to start. And because I could play both roles, it would be better for me to come off the bench. The only thing about that was it was really kind of stifling my ascendance, I'll put it like that, as as a featured player. Um, so looking back, you know, from from the coach's point of view, I can understand why he wanted me to, to uh, maybe come off the bench. Mm-hmm. But from my perspective, uh, I probably should have started with, with Hal Greer because I was an all-star and Hal Greer was an all-star and I could quarterback too. And, we, and Wally could have came off the bench. But that's how Jack uh, uh, set up and, and, and did me the first year I was there. Mm-hmm. The second year, of course, I started. I averaged nineteen uh, seven uh, when Billy Cunningham and Hal Greer was was carrying most of the offense, but I was quarterbacking, and I almost had the same um, uh, statistics as I had with the Lakers when Hal uh, when when uh, Jerry West and, and and Elgin Baylor and and the three of us was all stars. It seemed like to me then I could have been an all-star again. And mm-hmm. the next year I averaged over 20-some points, still being a quarterback. Uh, so there were times that I felt that, you know, my uh, uh, my career could have gone in a, in a better direction if not for the fact that uh, Jack Ramsey felt that I, I, I should come off the bench. Yeah, so Bob, you know— his game, Jack, his game, his style, whatever, it just didn't fit Jack's eye. It didn't mesh. I don't get it. How did Jack's utilization or lack thereof, how did his utilization of Archie affect Archie's career? How much better could Archie have been? Well, I mean, there's a couple of different ways to answer that. And, and one of the things about Jack Ramsey, he had been a very, very successful college coach, and he had a system. And when he made the transition to coaching in the pros, what he was trying to do is transition, adapt his college style 
um, in which he he had he he basically recruited a bunch of kids from from Catholic schools in Philadelphia, and he tried to adapt that to the pros. And one of the things that he wanted to do, and one of his big innovations, was a pressing uh, full court press that that the teams would would run throughout the game. And um, you know, originally it shocked teams, but the idea was that. Um, because the, the schedule was so so rigorous, um, the teams couldn't possibly um, press all season long, and and that's why Archie was really a valuable piece in that trade. Um, is that he wanted to have three pressing guards, but as as Archie was saying, um, you know that that didn't give him a chance to really showcase his abilities um, in the way that he really should have. Um, but that just wasn't Jack, Jack Ramsey's style. But the other thing, the other way to answer that question is Archie, um, you know, he took on the system and he, he did that um, as, as a signature of uh, the, the Robertson case, um, but also questioning his contract. He just didn't sign his contract. He negotiated his contract. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, so the system didn't take kindly to that. So, um, there are a couple of ways to, to look at it, but, but Archie con- continued on and, and persevered and, and you know, made a lot of money playing NBA basketball, but, but it didn't necessarily put him in a position where he could continue on as an all-star each season. Mm-hmm. Well, Archie, you played at a very, very volatile time as far as contracts and the growth of the NBA are concerned. And I'd love to get into all of it and talk about guys like Abe Poland and Fred Rosenfeld and Larry Fleischer, Jerry Sachs, Mr. Bibb, uh, Lou Maz, so many individuals. But like I just said, we would spend hours on all of this. And I want people listening to go out and get the book because it really is fantastic. And it dives in so deep on so many aspects of the player management relationship. So rather than getting into all of that here, I'd rather ask this, Bob, how did you put this together? Verify the facts. And when you first approached Archie about writing this book, was this what you had set out to do? Uh, <laughs> You know, every every book is you never write the book that you that you set out to to write, um, and because you learn things as you go along. Um, and I, I remember very early on when I started this book, I, I don't think I've ever said this to Archie, is writing along and saying. I remember writing to work one morning, thinking, "Man, I got a lot to learn about how the NBA works." <laughs> uh, worked back then, but um, you you just peck away at it and. And, you know, with, with the help of Archie, who, who again, t- really taught me uh, what all that he, um, that he went through, I, I was able to go back and talk to other players and, and compare notes and compare their stories. Um, so you, you learn as you go along. And, and uh, one thing about this book is, although it was 300 pages, it was also much longer than that, the, the final uh, <laughs> the final manuscript, um, because there's so much more to tell. And as Archie can mention, I would I would always send him the every finished uh, chapter, 
<laughs> Archie would, would read them and, and, and the stack just, I remember Archie telling me, Bob, the stack continues to grow. Um, <laughs> you know, there's just so much that we put into it and, and it ended up um, cutting the book um, down to size. And the second book will come out uh, hopefully within the next uh, year or two, um, which, which goes into um, more of how the, the, the system works. Mm. And um, okay. But but that's really that really was my focus in, in writing the book. Archie, you spent four years with Philadelphia. You averaged over eighteen points per game with them, but they were a sinking ship, and you wanted out. So you wound up with the Baltimore Bullets, and once again, management—it sort of pulled a fast one on you when it came to promises. And when it came to the Pearl, Earl Monroe, a guy whom you wanted to play with and you thought that the two of you could form, if not the best, one of the best, a heck of a backcourt duo. But Earl told you to watch out and it wasn't long before he was gone. Tell us about playing with the Bullets, the team that we now know as the Washington Wizards. Well, um, yeah, first of all, Philadelphia, uh, I could see it was almost like becoming a sinking ship. They initially, Jack Ramsey decided to trade Chet Walker, who was an all-star. And so I, I couldn't understand what direction he was going in or the team was going in. So, yes, I, I wanted out at that time. Um and uh, so I, I, I told Sonny Hill. Sonny Hill was a, a, a color commentator for the 76ers. I told him, hey, you know, let him know, you know, I wouldn't mind, you know, being traded. So he ended up, Jack Ramsey ended up, they did. They traded me down to the Bullets. I mean, and, but the the year before they, the, the summer before, they, after they had traded me, uh, in in uh, some before they had traded me initially, they uh, in Philadelphia they had a, a, the Baker League, which was a, a like a, a summer league where uh, former players, former uh, pros, and uh, college players would get together in the summer and play. Well, anyway, Earl Monroe and I played on the same team, and we won the championship of the Baker League that summer. So we knew we could play with each other. So when I was traded down to the Bullets, Earl and I, the first uh, time we got a chance to practice together, uh, we got together after the game. I'm mean, after the practice, I should say. And the Bullets had indicated to me that they we was going to start our contract over and everything, but. They didn't. They didn't live up to it. So anyway, uh, I told Earl I wasn't going to play unless I got my contract squared away. And uh, he told me that uh, he was upset with the bullets too. He didn't tell me specifically, you know, uh, all the things that he was upset with. So he and I, we decided. I decided personally not to play the next game. Realized Earl did not play the next game either. Well, Larry Fleischer was Earl Monroe's agent. He called me and he said, uh, Archie, 
what, what are you doing? I said, hey, I'm, I'm not going to play until I get my contract squared away. And he said, well, okay, let me know before you do anything. And <laughs> before I knew it, the Bullets had traded Earl Monroe mm. to the New York Knicks. And Larry Fleischer is the one that, that made that happen. <laughs> so Earl and I never got a chance to play, you know, in the pros together. But we knew we could play uh, together because he had indicated to me the time we played in the big league. He said, Archie, you run it, which is like quarterback. But you let me have it in the last two minutes of each quarter. That's the way he, he liked playing. That's the way he, he, could, he could show his skills off. So we had already had in our minds how we were going to play the game. It just so happened we didn't get a chance to play it in, in, the, in, in the NBA like we really wanted to. Mm-hmm. Well, your time with the Bullets was, was rocky. I mean, you challenged the reserve clause. You held out. You went to court, went to arbitration. Ultimately, you won. What was that like? I'm sure you wanted to be on the court rather than in court. But you are a man of principle, and you felt that the owner of the Bullets, Abe Poland, um, he wasn't being fair to you, especially after you were told that they would take care of you with a new contract after Baltimore had acquired you. It never worked out. How did that whole situation affect your career? What kind of impact did this have on you on the court and off? Was it worth it? Well, um, I, I indicated to, to them that uh, if, if we didn't square it away, then they was going to have to pay me what I wanted. And when I started my negotiations off, I told him I wanted at that time $375,000. And of course, at that time, I don't know who else was making that kind of money, but <laughs> Abe Holden, he didn't, he, he didn't necessarily want to pay that kind of money. So I said to him, and, and, and why don't you let me, you know, uh, uh, find out if any other teams want to pay me that kind of money. And, uh, I guess he, 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 he kind of wanted to call my bluff. So I asked Larry Fleischer. Larry was head of, he was attorney for the Players Association. So I asked him, why don't he check around and see who would be willing to pay me that kind of money? Anyway, he came back and told me, he said, two teams would want to pay me $300,000. The, the Buffalo um, Braves at that time and, and Seattle Supersonics would want to pay me. And so I went back to, 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 to negotiating with, with Abe Poulton. Actually, it was Jerry Sachs, who was general manager at that time. And I told him that, you know, their team would want to, want to, uh, would, would want to pay me. And, and <laughs> before I knew it, he, he, uh, they put a, went to court and put a temporary restraining order on me to keep me from playing. And so, uh, I got with Larry, who, like I said, he was the attorney for the association. I said, Larry, you know, they want, they, they put me in court and saying to me that they're going to exercise their reserve on me because the standard NBA contract had a, a so-called reserve clause that, uh, they had 
uh, ownership of, of a player uh, to perpetuity uh, unless they released it, released him. And but they had they had to uh, they they were obligated to give the player uh, the the equivalent of the last year of the contract that he was signed to. And come to find out, they did not give me all the compensation that that was in my last year of my contract. Uh, of my contract, uh, they didn't give me la- all the compensation that I was supposed to get it out of my last contract. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. I told Larry Fleischer that, and Larry said, "Yeah, you're right, uh, because the last year of my contract, you know, uh, from Philadelphia, I was making one hundred thirty-five thousand dollars, but also I had." Had had a, a, a interest-free loan, and uh, 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 they gave me a, a housing bonus. Uh, uh, so all of that was supposed to be incorporated in 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 the the last year of, of my contract, and the bullets were supposed to make sure that that compensation that they would offer me was equal to that. So anyway, the bullets uh, said no. They they put me in court. And so uh, when we went to court uh, down in Baltimore, uh, the judge ended up saying that uh, the re- he would he would take the restraining order off of, of me, but he's giving me a, a giving a, me a preliminary injunction to keep me from playing not only that year but the next year, Oof. Uh, un- un- unless I go through. The standard NBA contract had a provision in there that you had to go through uh, 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 arbitration and and what else was it? Uh, uh, I can't I can't quite remember. But anyway, uh, I went through that where uh, uh, it ended up we we ended up at the arbitrator. Uh, the arbitrator was named Peter Sykes, and uh, he was supposed to rule um, whether I was going to be a, a free agent or not, and that the reserve clause was, was, you know, was not being fulfilled. But anyway, he, I get a call from Larry Fleischer, and Larry said to me, he said, Archie, I got a call from Peter Sykes, and he said that if he had to rule today, we, you would lose. And, and and that that was hard to take. Mm. I, I couldn't hardly believe. It. I said, "Well, Larry, you know, did, what did you say?" He said, "You know, I I asked him had he talked to the bullets, and he said no, he hadn't talked to the bullets. So he Larry said that he said to him, "Why don't you call the bullets and tell him the same thing that you're telling me?" And then I <laughs> after that happened. Uh, later on in the day, I get a call from Larry and said, "Hey, they want to negotiate." So we ended up negotiating, and ended up with a with a three year contract. Uh, but and then uh, I ended up with a, a contract. The final year of that contract, I, I was making three hundred thousand dollars, and uh, and I didn't have an option clause. Mm. Well, but you know, one of the important things about the, about the reserve clause in the NBA is that it, it's all predicated on the reserve that that, that began in, in professional base or major league baseball, and the Supreme Court 
ruling in 1922. But but there really was no legal basis for the NBA, the NFL, and, and so on to have that same antitrust exemption, which allowed for the reserve clause. So so the NBA really was skating on thin ice with, with all its players. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, it was a tough time for sure. And um, it was a it was a learning period, I guess, for players and for management and a growth period, too. And um, speaking of growth, the Bullets were growing at that time. They were a championship caliber team, Archie's final year with them. But Archie, you, you hurt your shoulder. You didn't have the greatest of surgeries. Then you hurt your elbow by year's end. Like I said, um. You were a championship caliber team, but you weren't going to be a part of it moving forward. Um, when when you were let go by the Bullets, was there disappointment? What was the end of your time like with the Bullets? Well, I um, that the year that I came back after you know them holding me out and put me in court. And then we actually settled and then get having a contract. We lost, I think, to the um, in the in the Eastern Conference Finals to the to the Knicks. We had a good team, but we we had not really coalesced and we really hadn't gotten together very well because I was out for for so long. I didn't get back until to January. The next year, before we, I could get back. Uh, with the team, I hurt my shoulder. I had that shoulder separation, which really took my skill. Um, uh, the, um, the the team doctor he did the surgery. I don't I don't know what kind of uh, of expertise he had. Mm-hmm. He tightened that shoulder. It was really tightened up very very well. Uh, I put it like that. But I had pain. For 13 years after that, and I, I really didn't know how to rehab, and 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 uh, because I never lifted weights or anything like that, so the bullets recognized that um, my uh, my skill level was down, and so they had an opportunity uh, to 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 unload me. I'll put it like that, because um, Bill Russell had a team up in Seattle. And Bill Russell had already said when he was announcing that one of the players he would want to get was me. And so the bullet uh, traded me to, to, to uh, Seattle. To Seattle. And, and uh, I went up. To... Yeah, I think, I think it's funny how things work out, Archie. You played for some very good teams. The Lakers, whom you went to the finals with. A Sixers team, a good Bullets team. Uh, Seattle, you ended your career with Detroit. But in reading about your career, to me, I think the best, most relaxed and enjoyable season of your career, despite a couple of run-ins or disagreements with Russell, it had to be your year with the Seattle Supersonics. There are no contract squabbles. You had a really good handle on what your role with the team was, was that your most relaxed year you had, the most fun, um, least amount of pressure, 
Was that the best year? Well, yeah, I, I didn't have any pressure playing with Seattle. Russell needed a person who knew how to run a team and and maintain the production, overall production of the team. And that was my role. I was a quarterback. And uh, we had two scorers who would carry the offense. And, of course, I could still score some, but I couldn't score on the level that, that I had before, and I was still having pain in my shoulder. But uh, we had, they had Freddie Brown, who was a good scorer, and, and Spencer Haywood was a good scorer. I found out <laughs> that we also had six rookies at that time. So it was not an easy uh, type of situation. I mean, I, I, um, I had to, to make sure that I, I kept the team going in terms of overall production. Um, uh, Russ, Russ, uh, Russ, I put it like this. He, uh, he was not a red R back. I put it like that. Okay. Uh, he, uh, he he did not know the guard game. I'll put it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were times that uh, uh, he he leaned on me to 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 kind of help steer, you know, the things that had to to happen, especially from the overall production of of, of the, the team. I still had a whole lot of pain in my shoulder. Mm-hmm. I also had a high ankle sprain during that year. So it, it, and, and, and Russ, uh, he believed in, in a little bit of punishment. I'll put it like that for players. If he thought that, <laughs> you know, guys, if he, if he thought the guys were, didn't do as well as they could or should, he would have them run laps. And he would say to me, you know, even though I had a, sprained ankle he said Archie I want you to run with him just to show these guys you know how they have to you know have to uh, 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 work hard at what they're doing so that they can you know they can see how what it takes to be a winner Mm -hmm. so I did that for him Mm -hmm. I did that for him so in terms of 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 being such an enjoyable season it, 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 it wasn't the most enjoyable at the same time, we had a player named John Brisker who was a good scorer, and he was. But Russell would not let him play, and we needed everybody. But he he he, he kind of handicapped us by not letting John Brisker play, and so uh, we went to the playoffs, and and uh, we beat the Pistons, Detroit Pistons, in the first round of the playoffs, and we lost to. To the San Francisco, uh, the Warriors, uh, the Golden State Warriors, mm-hmm. who end up winning the championship. Mm-hmm. So we 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 did very well, and and uh, I I I I tease Russell right now that you know uh, I kept him from getting fired <laughs> by making sure we made the playoff. <laughs> hey Bob, in your estimation, what kind of impact? did Archie have on the NBA as far as off-the-court contracts behind the scenes are concerned? Well, I mean, Archie had – one thing that Archie did is is he 
he looked out for other black players who were coming in to make sure that that just as Woody Salisbury taught him about about the business of basketball, he was going to do the same. Um, and and among those he's he he helped was was Luel Cinder now Kareem Abdul Jabbar. But I think Archie's one one of his main contributions is the Retired Players Association, which has always been one of his his passions since he's since he's retired. And, you know, it's benefited so many uh, former NBA players. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Archie, when you look back at your career and the fact that you never got that championship ring, what are your thoughts? How would you classify your career? Did you accomplish what you wanted? Well, um, you know, I, I hadn't set any types of goals as far as, as, as playing basketball, I ended up re- realizing it, it was a business and I, I played the game to win, but I also wanted to get paid for the work effort that I was putting forth. So yes, it was all about winning with me. And there were times that I thought that we could have done better. Um, but having said that, you know, I couldn't control the team. I couldn't control some of the players that uh, was allowed to play or the system that the coach wanted to, to implement. Mm-hmm. But no, I I felt that I gave what I was supposed to give uh, because I put forth the effort. I practiced hard. I practiced um, uh, and as fast as I would play, I'd practice that way. So that in the game, it was almost, you know, it was almost just a repetition. Mm-hmm. And uh, I played in the game. I played hard, but I always played to win. Mm-hmm. It was not about me. It was about seeing what the team could do. Uh, there, was, I, I look back on it, and and there were times, of course, I was had scored thirty points and third quarter and I wouldn't hardly even shoot in the fourth quarter if we were winning. Hmm. I look back on it and I see, I, I look at guys now and I see, of course they get hot, what they call get hot. And all of a sudden, boom, they want to see how many points they score. I never looked at the game that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The only time that I even recognized that uh, the coach and the, and the, my teammates wanted me to score my career, was your career high. high. Yeah, I was playing against uh, uh, Atlanta and, and Pete Maravich, and I had scored obviously thirty-eight points. And I guess my career high at that time was thirty-nine points. I had no idea that that was the case, and the game was won, and all of a sudden. Uh, Gene Shu put me back in the game. I guess the guys that told him that, uh, you know, Archie could get a, a career high or something like that. Mm. And so uh, I'm, I remember when they put me back in the game, Pete, Pete looked at me, what are you doing? I, 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 sheepishly, I didn't want to say anything because I knew uh, that uh, <laughs> uh, why the coach had put me back in. 
And boy, those two of the hardest points to ever make because they didn't want me to <laughs> to, to score another basket. So, What's uh, more, the I game was up. on national TV too. Uh, I was I can't even remember that it was on national TV. But uh, anyway, I ended up scoring forty points, and uh, you know I really didn't didn't know that that was uh, going to be the case uh, that I was going to. Uh, uh, end up scoring my my career high. If, if it had not been for the, the coach putting me back in the game, I, I would not have even tried it. Well, Archie, I think you had a fabulous career, and I think more basketball fans and more basketball players need to know more about your story and your game. Um, and that's part of the reason why. And there's an easy way to do that. Yeah, well, I was just about to say this, and that's why I do my podcast called Sports Forgotten Heroes, because I try to bring these stories to the forefront, and go ahead, Bob, how else can people find out more about Archie Clark and his career? Well, an easy way to do it is to, to purchase Shake and Bake, and that can be done on, on Amazon easily. Just type in Shake and Bake and, or Archie Clark, and it should come right up. And, um, yeah, it's 300-plus well, pages, but as, as you said, it's, it's, a, it's an easy read. It is an easy read. Before, before we wrap up, Archie, I have got to ask you this question. My opinion, the NBA player of today... I am just not sure he could have made it when you played. I think you guys played a rougher style. Travel and accommodations weren't anywhere near the luxury it is today. And sometimes you guys had to play three days in a row, four days in a row, get there by bus, by train, by kooky, the kookiest planes, all sorts of weather. It didn't matter what time of day it was. A different city every day. And you guys went out and you played. If you were hurt, you played because you feared that you would never play again, that the team would cut you. So I got to ask you this question, Archie. What are your thoughts on load management? Well, I, I you know, I, I end up at, at some point in my life, I've also been a businessman. <laughs> and looking at it from a business point of view, I can understand these guys are getting paid a whole lot of money. And I can understand how management wants to make sure that they get the best out of those the, out of the money that they're spending on these players um, so as a result I, I can see how they allow those players in a, in a lot of sense not be playing when they're hurt um, like we did uh, if they were making only say, a hundred thousand dollars and and the owners were making billions, you know what I mean? Maybe the owners then would force them to play uh, mm. hurt uh, like they did us. 
but uh, it's a business. And uh, fortunately, also, these guys now uh, have the, the advantage of, of free agency, too. And uh, as a result, you know, uh, if they don't like a situation, uh, they can wait till their contract expires and then go somewhere else. That's the leverage that they have now, of course, that uh, uh, that the owners um, have to recognize. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember when uh, when Bullet said to me that if 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 I ended up having free agency, it would destroy the league. And now <laughs> they're happy that 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 kind of of free agency it allows for year-round interest in the NBA. And they're taking advantage of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. as far as load management is concerned, yes, I I, I can understand the rationale. Uh, and as far as as some of these players now, the players are stronger, they're bigger. They're uh, in a lot of cases they're they're it's, they're pretty skilled. These players now could play when we play. Okay, I don't believe I I. You know, every year these players get get better. Mm-hmm. They, they're stronger. They're more athletic. Uh, so I'm not one of that that nostalgic. I put it like that. Okay. Means that that the 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 years that I played is you know it, it was better than than what's happening now. It's a different game because of the rule changes. We um, we were allowed a lot more physical contact. They have taken a lot of that contact away because they want to, of course, uh, protect their their uh, their property. I'll put it like that. Fair enough, Archie. Bob, Archie, I want to thank both of you so much for spending some time with me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I encourage everybody to go out and get Bob's book, Shake and Bake. And um, again, guys, thank you so much for being with me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Well, thanks for having us on the program. Yeah, thank you, Warren. The worst trade in NBA history? I think not. The fact is, there was going to be a trade, and the Philadelphia Warriors weren't going to just take anyone in return. And while the Warriors didn't experience great successes with Archie, it was hardly his fault. During his four years in Philly, he averaged 18.2 points per game, 4.7 assists per game, and 4 rebounds per game. Hardly pedestrian numbers. In the playoffs, while with the Warriors, he upped his points per game average to 19.4, and he dished out 4.4 assists per game and grabbed 3.6 boards per game. Without a doubt, Archie Clark enjoyed a wonderful NBA career. Now make sure you grab a copy of the book, Shake and Bake, The Life and Times of NBA Great Archie Clark by Bob Cuska. You won't be disappointed. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, I welcome back to the podcast Joe Nice for a wonderful discussion about a baseball great, Zach Wheat. That's next time. For now, thanks again to my guest, Bob Cuska and the great 
Archie Clark, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.